The defense authorization bills, while contentious, would do a lot for contractors, from inflation relief to easing greenhouse gas emissions reporting. We get a summary from Haynes Boone procurement attorney Dan Ramish, and I guess, Dan, we should begin by noting, even though the House and the Senate have each passed their NDAAs, there are social issues, the abortion travel question, which is keeping them pretty far apart. But you found some things from both sides of interest to federal contractors. Let's start with inflation relief here. Yeah, Tom. So inflation relief, of course, with the levels of inflation over the past few years being unprecedented, have been a real cause for concern for contractors. And there were a number of memos issued by the Defense Pricing and Contracting Office last year, which led up to Section 822 of last year's NDAA, which provided new authority for DOD to provide relief on fixed price contracts for effects solely due to inflation if the costs exceeded the price on a contract because of inflation. And this relief was available to contractors and subcontractors, and there was a great deal of interest in this provision when it passed. The catch, of course, was that it relied on appropriations specific for this relief, and the money never showed up. And the relief expires uh, in December of this year. So the first thing that Congress uh, is looking at doing, and now this is in the House bill, but could easily imagine it being in the, the final NDAA, they're looking at extending that authority another year. But they're also including a second proposed provision that would allow the government, again, DOD, to modify contracts and options to provide economic price adjustments. And potentially that relief would not be linked to this need for an appropriation that was specific. So we need more information about that, but that might be a different avenue that could be very helpful to contractors. All right. Well, anything to do with helping out in inflation and reduction of those costs, I guess, is a good thing. And then there's some bid protests. You're putting it in quotation marks. Reform. This is on the House side. Uh, What's going on there? Section 804. So this is a provision we've seen in prior NDAAs, and it actually passed, I think, in the 2018 NDAA. Congress has been talking about this for uh, some time, instituting a loser pays system to discourage bid protests. You know, this is uh, something that I think contractors have kind of mixed feelings about because, of course, bid protests go both ways. When you're the awardee, you don't like protests. And when you are the bidder who's been done wrong by the government in the evaluation, of course, you are grateful that you have that mechanism. But more broadly, uh, bid protests provide a real check on the integrity of the procurement system. So they're important. Many of us uh, in the government contracts community are concerned if there are provisions that could significantly deter contractors from submitting bid protests. So I have some concerns about this provision. I've written about them in the past for the Public Contract Law Journal. Part of the issue is, you know, GAO has the authority to dismiss protests that fail to state valid grounds or that are frivolous already. So in this loser pays provision, there's no limitation that the protest be frivolous. If ultimately a protest is unsuccessful on the merits at GAO, then the protester would have to pay the costs, regardless of whether it was a legitimate protest. Uh, And it could be that they just failed to show prejudice. There was an actual error by the government, but they can't prove that it hurt their evaluation and prevented them from getting an award. So there are reasons to be cautious about this reform, recognizing that protests are a hassle for the government, but they do also keep the government accountable. And they're one of the reasons that people have trust in the system, because if the government fails to follow the rules, other offerors can challenge the award. 
Sure. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. And the Senate version would cut away some of the greenhouse gas reporting requirements that have been imposed by order from the Biden administration. And this always seemed like kind of a ridiculous exercise, frankly, for small businesses, services contractors whose gas emissions have to do with heating and air conditioning their offices, basically, or driving to the agency. And it just seemed like an unnecessary burden. But it's interesting that the Senate would have that provision in there. Yeah, Tom, I agree with you. There was a proposed rule about greenhouse gas reporting, and it was kind of an initial foray and would be subject to further revision based on comments submitted by the public. And that's been in process. But if this provision from the Senate bill were enacted in the final NDAA, it would bar any kind of reporting or inventories from non-traditional defense contractors. So non-traditional defense contractors includes small businesses. So Congress here is giving voice to those concerns from the small business community within the government contracts community that this would be unduly burdensome. It's part of the balance that folks in this area have to strike between policy priorities But the the practical reality is that these burdens have real effects on small businesses and on the defense industrial base. So there comes a time when it's just too much. So Congress is being cautious about that. They also put a two-year pause on any greenhouse gas reporting, even for contractors that are not non-traditional defense contractors. So we'll have to see how this plays out in conference. All right. And then I wanted to ask you about something that both the House and the Senate have included, and that is commercial products, commercial services provision, again, in that 800 series where they tend to put these things. And right at the beginning, Section 801, commercial nature determination memo available to contractors. What's going on there? So the House provision about commercial nature determinations would give the contractors the right to access a commercial nature determination. There's a little bit of ambiguity in the way the language is currently written, whether they would only get documentation if their product or service were determined to be commercial. But I think the intent would be, and they'd have to square this out in the regulations that implement the provision, the intent would be the contractors would get a determination whether it's commercial or not. And that's valuable. If it's commercial, they would be able to then show that to agencies for future awards to support the commerciality of their products or services. Or if it's an adverse decision that their product or service is not commercial, they'd be able to potentially make adjustments in their approach to have a commercial offering. So that's potentially quite valuable to contractors that are trying to avoid the red tape that come with non-commercial items. And there's always a study in NDAAs, and sometimes those studies <laughs> take years. Section 806 would require a study on reducing barriers to acquisition of commercial products and services, as if there's any left, I guess, here in 2023, <laughs> 4, and 5, but there it is. Yes. I mean, this is kind of a contradiction. As you say, it's just a study, but the direction of the study is quite interesting. The Congress directs DOD to study the feasibility and advisability of establishing a default determination that products and services acquired by DOD are commercial and don't require a commercial determination. So our system is built around the idea that the government acquires non-commercial items. Congress is looking at what if we flip the script here and say it's commercial unless there's a determination that it's not. And that could have pretty dramatic effects. But again, it's not so dramatic because it's just a study at this stage. Sure. I guess DOD by volume probably buys more commercial than non-commercial. Maybe by dollar, they buy more non-commercial. You know, howitzer shells are maybe common and commodity-like, but they're not commercial items, at least so far. 
Right. It would be interesting to see how this shifted the balance uh, and for items that are kind of on the cusp, whether the modifications that have been made to commercial products are too far to drive them into non-commercial. But the fact that you put the burden of documentation on uh, non-commercial products and services uh, clearly would, would make a big difference. Well, anyway, they've got to reconcile these two bills, and that's another story. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate it. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure is mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage, it's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot 
And please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces, when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And... It's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back 
and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.